0: Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Mike Rosenberg from Columbia Credit Union. Mike says they trust what they see and hear on OPB, and that aligns with Columbia Credit Union's brand.
1: This is Think Out Loud on OPB. I'm Dave Miller. We're going to bring you two conversations today about Black Liberation. They were recorded at the 2023 Portland Book Festival. We start with OPB's Prakruti Bhatt. She spoke with journalist Santi Elijah Hawley about his book, An American Family, The Shakurs and The Nation. From the Black Panthers to hip hop, the Shakur family have long been leaders of black political thought and activism in this country. Hawley describes a group of people from Asata to Tupac committed to resisting the persecution of black people and creating liberation through activism, care, violence, and art.
2: This is a very expansive, multifaceted book, and we have only 30 minutes, so I'm gonna get right to Let's it. Get to it. <laughs> Santi, you start the book off with a quote by Manning Marble History's greatest dangers are waiting for those who fail to learn its lessons. Any oppressed people who abandon the knowledge of their own protest history or who fail to analyze its lessons will only perpetuate their domination by others. In part one of your book, you brought this code to life. It felt like you were telling us, are you not seeing this? Like, it's history repeating itself all over again and again. Was that your intention?
3: It really wasn't my intention until I uh, began working on it. I began working on this book in the fall of 2020. Um, Donald Trump was still president. There was, there was racial uprising movements happening all over the country. We were still in COVID. Um, you know, there was so much happening. It just felt like there's just the, the country was really in turmoil. Like we were just sort of trying to figure out what was going on. And I approached this this book sort of thinking, you know, it was it's a history book. I'm telling this this really rich history. But I started to see parallels to what was going on with just um, just in society with things that we were going through with with police harassment of black and brown people. Um, so that's really, you know, that sort of stayed it with me as I was writing the book. I mean, I really was, I, I didn't intend for it to be a sort of, you know, rooted in the present so much, but as I kept working on it and writing it, I, I really started to see more and more parallels.
2: Yeah, let's go back to the past. You know, during the this revolutionary movement towards black liberation, it seemed like, There was a lot in a name. Um, What was the significance at that point in time to take up the surname of Shakur, and also, you know, choosing an African name in the '60s and '70s?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Back then, I mean, there was really a lot of. There's a movement for sort of pan-Africanism. There's a movement towards people were sort of embracing uh, Islam and shedding their the birth names or as they would say their slave names in favor of more Pan-Africanist names or, or Muslim names. Uh, so the Shakurs really got their start in the uh, mid-60s of a patriarch Saladin Shakur who took the name for himself and others, uh, his, his two oldest sons, people that he mentored took the name Shakur out of respect to Saladin Shakur and also um, it was a way of aligning yourself with this family or this tribe, really, this community of people who are committed to black liberation, um, committed to Pan-Africanism, uh, Islam, but really just saying, we are a member of this tribe now, we're ready to do this work for the, you know, the rest of our lives, we are committed. Um, and you know it wasn't something that was taken lightly, to take this name Shakur, it wasn't just something that you would just take because it sounded cool, uh, it was saying that you're making a commitment to the struggle, um, you know, and whatever, however it looks and whatever, you know, whatever it takes.
2: Can you introduce us to your main characters, Lumumba Shakur, Zaid Shakur, and Afeni Shakur?
3: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of sh- I feel like you know, most of us know Tupac Shakur, obviously. A lot of us know Asada Shakur. But there, and then some of us know Afeni Shakur, uh, which is Tupac's mother. But they're, you know, and that's sort of where it ends. And when I was researching this book and sort of diving into this family and this history, I realized just how many more Shakurs there were and how pivotal they were. Um, Black Panthers, you know, uh, Matulu Shakur, which is uh, Tupac's stepfather, was pivotal and a pioneer in acupuncture, holistic healing for drug withdrawal symptoms. Um, Lumumba Shakur was Afeni's first husband, Zaid was Lumumba's brother. There's all these like different Shakurs and I was trying to put them all together and trying to figure out how they all, you know, the pieces and because it's such a rich family, and they were, all were very active in their own way, like they all saw ways that they could contribute, and um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's you know, those, those are the main characters. Tupac really is, you know, the starting point, but he really isn't um, the focus of the book. He almost is like, he's growing up as this book proceeds, because he's a young baby, sort of at the start of the book, and he grows up surrounded by this family and by, you know, the, the movement elders and movement, the Black Liberation Movement veterans, all sort of are raising him and, and surrounding him as he's growing up, and uh, so he's sort of you know he, even though he's not the focus of the book, he's always sort of like this thread that's sort of running through. Every once in a while, he'll pop in, he'll like be running around like little Tupac, um, and then you sort of see uh, you sort of see how he became who he was towards the end of the book. You sort of see how he became you know, so knowledgeable about this history is because he grew up with this history.
2: You mentioned Islam earlier. Um, You know, we've seen in formerly colonized countries like India, where religion played a really important role in forming identity. What was the connection between Islam and the black liberation movement?
3: In the 60s, in the mid 60s, people were really, like younger generations of of black activists and black organizers were um, you know, moving away from Christianity, the Christianity of their parents and grandparents. Um, and they were looking towards other continents, other people, and, and and you know, something that sort of, they resonated better with. They felt like Christianity, as it was being preached during the Civil Rights Movement, you know, they had moved beyond that. And so it wasn't just, um, you know, so it was a whole sort of rethinking your identity and, and, and aligning yourself with you know, with African nation or African countries, with, you know, Southeast uh, nations, um, just sort of just broaden their their worldview and to connect with sort of a world community. Um, and for them, uh, Islam was a way of, of embracing the sort of larger world community besides, you know, just what they had been taught, which is like turn the other cheek, you know, they, they were really ready to move on past everything from their parents' generation, which is, you know, nonviolence integration, you know, all this stuff, they were just like, we need a different way, because this isn't working, so that also involves, let's embrace, you know, learn about a different religion and different gods, and um, so it really became just a whole way of thinking about identity and, and purpose. Yeah.
2: You also mentioned, you know, the term black power in this book went through like, a lot of debate and conflict when it was first you know, introduced by SNCC chairman, uh, Stokely Carmichael. Mm-hmm how has that definition how has that term black power evolved over the years
3: black power movement really started yeah like you say with with uh sophie carmichael who popularized the term uh as a way of advocating for self-determination it really came out of the civil rights movement which was you know like i said they were they're sort of becoming disillusioned with the incrementalism of that um and they felt like yeah like you know, voting rights and everything, is sitting at an uh, integrated lunch counter is all fine and well, but we really need political power, we need, you know, economic power. So that's kind of really what it means. Like, black power is political and economic power, self-determination. Um, and that's where the Black Panther Party really st- comes out of, is like, they sort of formed, grew out of the Black Power movement, was already sort of rolling. Black Panther Party said, well, okay, this is what we're, this is where we're going now. So Huey Newton and Bobby Seale in Oakland said, well, the Black Panther Party for self-defense, which is really just police accountability, serving your community, um, you know, any way that you can. And that was sort of, but yeah, black power, like I say, was debated a lot as to what it meant. Like, was it, did it mean owning your own business? Did it mean, you know, did it mean just breaking off from the country and forming your own little independent nation? Like there was, it was debated, but I think it was all about um, really just trying to like get that sort of confidence back and sort of have that sort of like, you know, you know, folks have been, were beaten down so much and just felt like there was no progress being made, so that people were really just trying to think about how can we have a little more self-determination and just self-empowerment.
2: We know the Lincoln Detox Center, which came in um, in 1970 in the Bronx. Um, and we also see Mutulu Shakur introduce this, uh, you know, introduce acupuncture as a cure towards addiction um how did that all fit in with the black revolution movement
3: matulu, matulu shakur if you're not familiar with matulu who just passed away this last july um he was tupac's stepfather he was Afeni's uh second husband and he discovered acupuncture this was back in the early 70s when acupuncture really wasn't as widely known as it is now but he just he happened upon some newspaper article that was talking about what they were doing in china to help people that were withdrawing from opium uh, withdrawal symptoms and using like ear pressure and little needles in the ear. He's like, well, the people in the South Bronx are dying from heroin, maybe we could try this in the heroin. So he just taught himself, um, you know, he read some books. He and the Lincoln Detox Center at the, the Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx um, really taught themselves acupuncture. I mean, then they, then they brought in some some people who taught them a little more, you know, how to do it and how to administer it. And then they went on to teach other people how to do it. And it took off. People were, you know, lining up down the street to, for this treatment. So. Uh, for them, for, for folks like Matulu Shakur, um, this was, you know, this is part of black liberation because it's, 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 it is it's 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 community healthcare, often free, cheap, you know, it's just addressing an urgent need, an immediate need. Um, seeing, you know, like, our folks are dying, you know, or just being just wiped away and like, no one's here to help us, so we have to help ourselves, we have to help each other. And so they just sort of took that initiative and said, well, we're not going to wait to go through all the, you know, red tape and everything that we have to do to figure out, it. They, they weren't licensed, you know, they, Matulu uh, eventually did become a doctor of acupuncture, so he, um, but he, that was even the sort of a weird roundabout way, you had to go to California, get licensed, and then come back to New York, so he was licensed in California, but not New York, but he's just like, well, at least I'm licensed. Um, And then, you know, but then, and then opening an acupuncture school to teach other, he's like, well, I don't, you know, he he didn't have any permission to to open the school, but he's just like, well, this is what we need. And the Shakur family, really, that's kind of like how they just operated across the whole, you know, with everything. It's just, they just saw immediate need and urgent need, you know, what, how could we serve our, you know, our people? um, And they just, they just did it, you know, they're just like, well, let's just, feed hungry people, hungry school children. Uh, we had to organize tenants, you know, who are being exploited by landlords, um, you know, uh, just things like that. Just like, you know, legal, if you need legal service, you need legal aid, like that's what Faney was doing. It was just all, all these little things that each Shakur really just found their, their passion and things that they were good at, and just, you know, dived in. Well-
2: Sarah Shakur was also very passionate. Um, many Americans are familiar with her name. She remains on the FBI's most wanted list. But she was an enigma, basically. You know, the there was a lot of, like her portrayal was manufactured by the police. You had a lot of media inventions. Uh, could you describe her personality to us? Like?
3: <laughs> well, I haven't met her personally, yeah. unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, everything that I, everything I learned about Asada came secondhand. People who knew her, people who have worked with her, people who helped her escape from prison. Um, and everybody, uh, and everything I learned about her was that she really wasn't, she became Asada Shakur, the Asada that we know, after years of the trials that she was facing because she was being dragged to trial after trial for various um, alleged crimes like bank robbery. Uh, ambush of police officers, but she would be acquitted uh, of charge after charge. And then she sort of created this, you know, she was writing because people really didn't know who she was because the media, the police were sort of, had built up this sort of larger than life character around Asada. Um, and so she felt the need to really uh, speak for herself and to sort of say, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, because everybody is sort of portraying me in different ways. So I need to let folks know who I am and, and you know, what they're doing to me. So she was writing letters, she was, you know, um, just getting the word out and sort of spreading the word about who she was, about who the Black Liberation Army was, which is what she was mostly uh, affiliated with. She was a Black Panther Party member for a short time before um, joining the BLA, which was a much more clandestine, militant, underground uh, organization. That's really what she talks about the most, especially in her autobiography, which really sort of made her more famous, because she wrote that after she'd already escaped from prison, she, had, uh, she was exiled in Cuba, and the autobiography really, I mean, people still today, obviously, like, it's, it's a really important book, and it's really, because she's so, you know, she had time to really think about what was happening, and she had a little perspective after being away from it, but, yeah, like you say, she was an enigma for most of early 70s, mid-70s, and not really until, you know, the sort of cause celeb. Uh, sort of grew around her. You know, people really rallied to her defense. Um, and that's when she was like, well, I need to speak for myself. I need to sort of define who I am for myself because the police are doing it for me, but it's not accurate.
2: In her words, she said, until every black person is free, the black liberation army still exists. What does that revolutionary force look like today?
3: <sighs> it's hard to say. I mean, because th- what, you know, what folks were doing and what they were fighting against in the 60s and 70s is not, like I said at the beginning, it's similar, the similarities, but we have our own things today that are separate. We have our own ways of doing things as we should. That the world is different. I mean, social media is just, um, we have different ways of addressing the things that we're facing in society. Um, and so to say, you know, as she, as she wrote, the Black Liberation Army will always exist. Um, I don't, I, I don't know if I agree with her. I mean, I, know, I think she was writing from a, a place that really felt like she believed that that might have happened. But during the 80s, when she, when she was writing this, her, uh, her autobiography, the movement was really sort of falling apart. I and mean, it already sort of started falling apart um, in the 70s and sort of struggled to find its footing. And I think today, sometimes we often look to the past uh, for I don't know, instruction or inspiration, which is good to to look at the you know, what the folks were doing back then. But we also really have to keep in mind that we are, you know, fighting our own battles and we're fighting you know, different things today. Um so it's good to learn, like take lessons from what the BLA did, from what sada did, from what all the street cores are doing in the sixties and seventies, but also just apply that to what we're doing now rather than use them as the like, you know, you have to emulate and copy what they're doing. Just like take that Think what they did is as inspiration but also caution because there's a lot of mistakes that they made you know a lot of things that um, you know they were young and impressionable they didn't really have much uh, you know there's no instruction manual to revolution um so I, I think every generation just improves on the last you know the last movement or the last people um, we learn from their mistakes so maybe you know black liberation will always until black people in america are you know, on equal footing and the, at the same equal rights as everybody else in this country, like there will always be a fight for black liberation, will always be a fight for liberation, um, but it's just gonna, it's gonna look differently.
2: Let's talk about Tupac. Let's talk about uh, Tupac. Yeah, to be a Feeney's son, to be tagged as the black prince of revolution. I think for Tupac that would like, you're dealing with this heavy weight of expectations. Isn't it a lot of pressure for a young child at that point in time?
3: Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was, yeah he, he was raised with the expectation. Like I said, like, so the movement itself or the elders, the veterans, people who had survived, who'd, a lot of them were incarcerated doing like, long bids, and some of them had been killed by law enforcement. Uh, a lot of them were uh, struggling with drug addiction, like, like Tupac's mother. But so Tupac really was, I mean, he honestly was, he had the expectation, he had, he had the burden of, of feeling like all these people were expecting him to to take up the mantle and, and you know talk to the new generation, get them active again, get them involved, uh, and that's what he thought of himself. That's what he that's really what he even started to get enter- entertainment for. Like to to, to to when he was started rapping, a lot of his rhymes, a lot of his songs were like about the Panthers, about police oppression, about you know harassment. Um, because he felt like that's how he could reach people the best. That's how he could reach his peers, that's how he could reach just the average you know, folks on the street, um, was using hip-hop, you know? So it wasn't like a contradiction for him. I mean, for a while, he was considering being the chairman, or he was chairman for a brief time, uh, the New African Panthers, which was uh, like this organization that was like a youth organization that was sort of picked up where the, the, um, the Black Liberation Movement had sort of fallen off. So he was going to be the chairman. He was going to do all that work, but then he got a little bit of success as a rapper. So he was like, "Well, I can I can better reach more people with music," and that's why he got into it. I mean, he felt like he had a burden, a responsibility, but at the same time, you and, and I've you know talked about this before, but he had a lot of trauma from everything that happens in this book, everything that he witnessed or that he, you know, his parents witnessed or survived. He had this just. He grew up with this trauma. This whole, fam- you know, the whole family did, um, and so he's now uh, jumping into, you know, he's like an international celebrity. He's got money. He's got fame. He's in movies, um, and he's a young man. He's like 1920 when he first got started, and he never really addressed uh, what it felt like to be a Shakur. I mean, because that, that was a heavy thing. I mean, he was born and raised a Shakur, and. To be born and raised in to, to have that name, you're already a t- kind of a target for, for law enforcement, for institutional forces, um, which he f- which he carried with him his whole life. I mean, he was a target, so he just it was like this, you know, thing where he just wanted to honor his family and the things that they had done, but he also wanted to, you know, he lo- he loved to party and you know was a young man, and sometimes he just got knocked around. He couldn't really just stay focused. He would just get knocked around a lot. Um, which is, you know, understandable, but eventually it kind of got the better of him.
2: Yeah, and like, you know, keeping his music in mind, what, what role did his work play in the whole liberation movement, and how did he face, you know, acts of censorship?
3: He got, he ran into trouble a lot with the, with the police. I mean, it's, it's like, it could go, There's a whole list of things. I mean, like, uh, he was always getting in trouble. Sometimes it was justified, sometimes it was not justified, but... I mean, a lot of the times. I mean, his lyrics. If we look at, especially his first couple of records, and then you know, sprinkled throughout and interviews, especially. You know, he didn't he didn't he didn't hide away he didn't hide from he didn't shy away from uh, calling out crooked police officers, crooked judges, um, income inequality, uh, just you know things that the community was facing at the time. He didn't shy away from it, and I think he attracted he attracted a lot of heat because of it. Because um, he was very outspoken. I mean, not a lot of folks were doing it. I mean, there's people, other other entertainers who were, you know, like Public Enemy, uh, Ice Cube, who had that sort of. But Tupac would like live that life. I mean, he was out there calling out police officers by the, you know, to their face, shooting them, just, uh, you know, mouthing off. Um, you know, and he, but he'd always, when he when he actually had a quiet moment, and you can see in a lot of interviews, he would. Give it perspective and context. He's like he's not just you know wild and out dude who just thinks he's invincible. I mean he did, but when you got him to kind of quiet down and talk to an interviewer, then he would really explain like why he was doing this, what you know what we were up against, who he was, what his family expects of him, and he kept he kept in touch. I mean he he was surrounded by movement elders who like tried to keep him focused you know, sometimes he'd get called in on emergency meetings, like, we gotta, we gotta, you know, we gotta bring it back, we gotta bring it in. Um, so, like, a lot of times throughout his life, until up until the end of his life, people were still trying to, like, keep him on track.
2: Yeah, that takes me back to the whole Thug Life tattoo that you mentioned yeah. in the book. Um, yeah, and that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, Thug
3: Life, yeah, when he got that um, tattoo, you know, Th- Tupac has Thug Life tattooed across his abdomen, uh, he, he got it sort of, um, on a whim. I mean, you know, he didn't really put a lot of thought into it. He really wanted to just portray himself as being hard because he was a sensitive theater kid. And he really wanted to just to, to try to fit in with like these, this new crew that he's running around with. And so he just was overcompensating a lot of times. And he got thug life thinking that'd be hard. Um, but an old family friend, a movement veteran, Watani Tahimba was like, brought him in. So at this point, Matulu was still locked up and they had, like, had an emergency kind of meeting they brought in tupac to, to go talk to matulu at the at the federal penitentiary and Matulu was like what, what is this thug life you're not a thug you know you know you know you're not a thug um and tupac was like i know i know i know and matulu was like well now you we have this so we have to figure out you know a lot of people are you know you have a lot of people looking up to you so what they're going to want to know what thug life is and so together you know matulu and tupac came up with the code of thug life and thug life Tupac retroactively defined as the hate you give little infants Fs everybody. Which means like the, you know, how we treat children in society has long reaching um, uh, effects on on us, on, on society. Um, and then they came up with the Code of Thug Life, which was basically just like kind of similar to the Panthers 10 point program, but for just people, you know, in the 90s who were living in the projects or whatever, just to sort of like abide by some sort of rules to keep us from killing each other all the time. So he used the life to sort of become a, 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 a platform, like a political platform in a sense. Yeah,
2: thank you. Finally, what does Tupac mean to you personally?
3: Wow, how much time do we have? I'm trying to make this, so I'm an old head hip hop fan, so I, I was a fan of Tupac back when he was still alive in the 90s. Um, I did not know, I really didn't think all that deeply about his music, or about what he was talking about until I got a little older and I was like, oh, this guy is deep. Um, and then learning about his family and where he came out of and what he, what he, was, what he was doing and what he was attempting to do with his life, the short, you know, his brief time here. He means a lot of things, but he means really just embrace like how wild and crazy like you are, but be willing to make mistakes and move on and admit your, your, admit your mistakes i mean tupac made a lot of mistakes he was a very he was a very imperfect uh messenger um he made a lot of mistakes um he owned up to him you he, he, you know but he, he was contradictory well i used to think he was contradictory and the more i thought about it the more i realized it doesn't need to be a contradiction you can be you can have these two sides within you you can have you can be politically active you can be committed to the movement uh and You'd also want to party and you know, get drunk and smoke blunts and run around with your boys. It doesn't have to be, and that's just that's who he was. And Both sides you know, were equal in him, and I feel like I really just, you know, some people want him to be one thing or the other. And I think his brilliance was that he was both, and he was both equally and very equally passionate about each side of his personality.
2: Thank you so much for these very knowledgeable 30 minutes, Santi. This (laughs) was fantastic. I'm pretty sure we don't have enough time in the world to cover the Shakurs and the Black Liberation Movement, but thank you.
3: Yeah, thank you so much. Hey, thanks, everybody. Thank you.
1: That was OPB's Prakriti Bhatt in conversation with journalist Santi Elijah Hawley at the 2023 Portland Book Festival. Hawley's new book is An American Family, the Shakurs and the Nation. Coming up after a break, Mitchell S. Jackson makes an argument that Alan Iverson is the Tupac of basketball. From the Gert Boyle Studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. From Dennis Rodman's hair color to Michael Jordan's sneakers to LeBron James's Tom Brown suits, the NBA has long been a place where players' style off the courts is sometimes talked about as much as their style on the courts. Mitchell S. Jackson grew up in Portland and has since become a national literary name. His latest book is Fly, the big book of basketball fashion. It chronicles the relationship between basketball, fashion, politics, and hip-hop. OPB's Paul Marshall spoke with Jackson at the twenty twenty-three Portland Book Festival.
0: Love the book. I'm not gonna lie, the pictures did all yeah, of that work. I was well, like I hope so. Say less <laughs> the pictures. <laughs> but I am curious how it came about. You do yeah. have a basketball background, that's fair to say. Yeah, and yes. You do have an interest in fashion. So yes. was this your idea? Was it a Someone lob it up to you, how
4: did we get to fly? I wish I could claim it as my idea. I never have any good ideas. <laughs> but I know a good idea when I hear one, and that's what happened. But I will say the very first piece of published journalism that I wrote was in the Portland Tribune in 2001, almost famous about some local guys who I thought should have went pro. One of who is was Orlando Williams, who worked for the Trailblazers. Um, there was a guy I went to high school with. So all these years later, it, it does make sense that I would write about basketball and fashion, I think. It, it flows, I, I totally get it. But yeah. the title, Fly,
0: like, yes. there's so many different um, ways you could go with that. I'm curious,
4: yeah. was that a hard struggle to come up with the title or was it? Man, I was in Savannah, Georgia. I was with my editor because I was doing a story on Clarence Thomas, which is about as far away from Fly as you can get. And, and he was like, man, the, the publishers want a title. And I was like, man, she, you want to do it now? Like, what about Clarence? <laughs> and so we sat there drinking tea and just kept going back and forth. And then I said, well, you know, you got to be fly. He was like, fly. I was like, fly. I said, man, that's it. Then he had the subtitle, the big book of basketball fashion because Esquire does a, the big black book of something like that. And I was resistant to the big book of basketball fashion because I thought it was derivative. So I'm gonna claim to fly. I'm gonna give him the big book of basketball fashion. One of the things <laughs> I like
0: about the book is it's broken up by eras yes. and not decades. Um, when you were coming up and defining what is an era, what was there criteria you're looking for? What defined an era for you?
4: the eras were marked by aesthetics. So I would take a look at a span of years in the league. I would say, okay, I would either research or know who were the prominent players of that era. And then I would just look at as many photos as I could. And then I would say, where do I see a shift? Like a a really explicit shift in the way that these players are dressing. And then I say, okay, well, it looked like it happened in sixty something. I'll say, okay, well, what was happening in the culture in in nineteen sixty that might have informed the way that these players were were dressing? And I would do that again, and I would say, okay, well, if they if this was sixty, where do I see another significant shift? I say, oh, well, this nineteen eighty. Okay, well, what's happened in nineteen? And it got easier when I got into the eighties, obviously because I was alive for some of that. But but still, it was it, it was finding the players, finding enough of them to to be able to see if there were some shifts, and then trying to investigate what might be their shifts. And sometimes it was something social, sometimes it was something political, sometimes it was something uh, that was happening with the economy, like like the Reagan years. Um, But it was really fun um, looking back, especially at the players who I didn't really have a familiarity with. So if you go anything pre-1976, I didn't really like, you hear, hear George and Like I ain't seen no George and photos. Um, so it was really interesting and harder to find those photos as well. He did a lot of George and drills when you played basketball though, right?
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Was, <laughs> the flamboyance era is yes. like, it's really where we start to see a cut through in fashion or a distinctive style and I entered 60s and 70s and you, you see, you know, Walt Clyde Frazier, you see um, Willis Reed, yes. you see even Pistol Pete. Yeah. A pretty fly for a white guy, like yeah. that's a,
4: <laughs>
0: but talk about the flamboyance era and how people started to, that perception started to cut through and their image changed. That era yeah. seemed to be where it started.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, in order to look at any era, you got to look at the era that preceded it. And so for me, the era that comes before flamboyance is conformist. Um, And so the the NBA started in 1946, which we know is pre-civil rights. And so what happens if you are so lucky to be a black person that is allowed into this league, that is really a white man's league at the time, what does that mean for you and your community? How do you have to dress to be perceived as serious, right? You know, there's a, said this, but I've never heard a white person being described as a credit to their race. But in the 1950s, black people all the time were like, oh, this guy's a a credit to his race, right? And so, which also means you can discredit your race, right? By not dressing right, by being seen as as fair weather, all these different things that can make you um, harm this kind of um, insidious uh, collective stereotyping um, and so I think that we get into the 1960s right thanks to you know what the Shakurs were doing and King was doing and all these people, and we get to legislation that makes us at least on the books we 're free um, and I think that freedom shows up in the era of flamboyance, right? Like think about blaxploitation and what was happening there. Like y'all, I don't know if y'all watch some exploitation movies, but they was big bell bottoms and chew, fish in the shoe, I mean, in your heel Bye-bye and shoes. all that. Yeah, so I mean, that's freedom. Or at least I guess it feels like freedom. And so I think that that air of flamboyance is really a response to what do we do when we feel free, when we finally receive a modicum of freedom and those guys were heroes. And
0: it's like, how does a hero yeah. look? How do they yeah. dress? Yeah, yeah, um, You know, the afro is the statement, the yeah. clor- like that's, it's a statement.
4: Man, I think if you are if you're a basketball player, you got 82 games, that's if you don't make the playoffs. When you make the playoffs, you got 100 games, 100, I don't know, something games. You got all those opportunities, and every game is an opportunity for you to be a hero. Every single game you can be a hero. What other profession could you be a hero a hundred and something times in a year? Really in six months? Right? Like you write a book, you write the great novel. You took ten years to write the novel. Bless <laughs> you, Jonathan. And then you're like, you got. A year, maybe, that people are talking about it. And then you got to go back into your, you know, like you didn't get 175 times to be a hero in a year. So I really do think that that's important to how we view fashion and why these guys are so impactful because they have all of these opportunities. And not just that we see them walking down the tunnel, is that we see them walking down the tunnel to be heroic. Right? Like, yeah, I can get fly, but I'm not no hero. Mm -hmm. We go from that
0: to the Jordan era, and for better or for worse, there were a lot of things that were included. (laughs) But one thing you note is, if you're gonna talk about the Jordan era, you have to talk about Reaganomics. Yes. They are tied together, you cannot separate them. Yes. Can you explain more about why they're so Um,
4: combining? I mean, you know, there's the famous Jordan quote, um, Republicans buy Nikes too, or Republicans buy sneakers, I think that's what he said. Um, which obviously didn't hold up very well. Um, yeah, I think, you know, in order to understand Reaganomics, you would have to understand the. Okay, so what happened when black people got their freedom in the 1970s? They gave us crack, right? And crack destroyed my community here, for certain, right? And, and so many other depressed communities. And so. We also get around, we get Willie Horton at that time, right? They're, they, they're trying to re, um, uh, they're trying to make the black man again a danger like they did when they, you know, legalized cocaine or, or make cocaine illegal, right? They were black men raping women. So the same thing happened, right, with this, this white backlash to black freedom. And Reagan is really a part of that with his Make America Great Again, with his, you know, how are we going to institute this, Uh, restabilizing of our uh, economy, right? So all of these things are happening. Also at the same time that celebrity is hitting its apex, right, I don't think that we can look at Michael Jordan without looking at Michael Jackson. And I don't think that we've ever had had a bigger celebrity in the world than those two people. Um, And I think that that celebrity is also a celebrity that is—it's is, unlike the celebrity have, we have now, right? Where you can see what they're doing every day, and they got Instagrams, and they're making TikTok videos, and like we didn't know what Mike was doing in between Thriller and you know Off the Wall. And I think all of those things, right? Like the height of celebrity, the uh, crack cocaine, and the um, dehumanizing of, of black people was happening. Uh, and then Michael Jordan takes the league in that era up to its apex, right? Magic Johnson and Larry Bird resuscitate the league. They have a drug problem in the 1970s. The league is faltering, their games are on tape delay. Magic and Bird, their rivalry, Celtics and Lakers, boost the league, right? Now we're watching games when they're happening, and then Jordan takes the league to its apex. At Jordan's height, he is the most famous person on the planet, second only to Jesus. One thing also, too, is
0: the money starts growing, yes. and the bags are getting bigger, yes. and the contracts are starting to get a little bit out there, and yeah. <laughs> that impacts um, a lot of players because when you get money, it yeah. changes a lot of things, mm-hmm. and kind of in during that era, you start we get the Iverson effect, and that's an era, I started getting into basketball a little bit more, I, was, mm-hmm. I remember that a little bit more fondly, but can you talk about AI's impact,
4: Iverson, not, just to be clear. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I heard someone say this, I wish I could claim it, but not, I'm not one of them dudes who's gonna claim something that somebody else said, but I heard it again, like a good idea. <laughs> I knew it when I heard it. They said Iverson was the Tupac of basketball. And I agree with that. Um, in the way that Iverson was a mythology before he ever stepped foot in the league, right? He gets in this big brawl when he's in high school. First of all, he's a legend in high school, right? He plays football as small as Iverson was. He was a great quarterback in basketball. So he's already legendary. Then he gets into the brawl, right? He goes to jail. He needs a pardon to get out. He gets a pardon to get out. Like, you know you popping when you get a pardon in high school to get out of jail, right? Then he goes and plays in Georgetown for the most famous black coach in the history of college basketball. Can we agree on this? Okay, there's yes. maybe some argument with Temple and all that, but really it's John Thompson. So all of that, then he's a the number one pick, right? So if you look at Iverson, like that mythology is running almost alongside Pac, right? And, and what's happening in Pac's life and him getting in trouble, and him, you know, so like they're taking cues from each other. Pac is 71. Iverson and I are 75, so he's not that much older than us. And certainly, you know, the tattoos, the, you know, the, the, the kind of resistance to authority, like that's really Iverson. And I think, again, to or, in order to look at what we have now, the Iverson effect, we have to look at Jordan, which Jordan was corporate America. You know, he's a pitch man. He ain't going to say the wrong thing unless it's the sneaker thing, but Jordan really wasn't caught out of pocket. He was not resisting David Stern's mandates, Iverson is. And so Iverson very quickly establishes himself as the future of the league, as the most um, iconic and um, I don't wanna say necessarily important, but the one that the league is patterning in itself. All the young guns wanna be Iverson in some way. And so he's also the antithesis of Michael Jordan. Iverson is getting his hair braided on the bench. He got lollipops, you know, like, he wearing his shorts all big. Like, he's, everything Mike is not. And he's also the future. So you gotta get a hold on that if you don't want your league to look like a bunch of Iversons. And I think that that coupled with, uh, you know, the the prevalence of hip hop, right? Like hip hop is also hitting its apex. We got Jay-Z, Big Pimpin'. You know, this is early 2000s, all of these things, I think. And David Stern is a man of a certain era, mm-hmm. right, who has helped usher the league up to its apex. And he's looking at this young dude like, man, if I get about five or six more irisons in here, which he did, yeah. uh, this could go south. And he recognized that and Game him dress code.
0: And that's where it shifts. And yes. there was a lot of pushback, and it created a schism, because you are telling black and brown people, essentially how to dress and in other words, how to act. Yes. And um, with that dress code, yeah. how, how did the players react and you know, where did that land with some and
4: some with others? So when I hear people talk about black liberation and black self-determination, they talk about them as if they are the same thing. But I actually think they're different because if you say black liberation, there is a liberator. And if you say self-determination, you're saying, no, nah, I'm going to do this no matter who is on the other side of this. And I think that you can look at the, the mandates of the dress code in terms of liberation or in terms of self-determination. I mean, either one can get us to here. I always felt that there was like a Kobe who... A bi- who,
0: <laughs> He wanted to be Jordan. Yeah, he wanted he to be that. He was following that model, yeah, yeah. And then you have those who they acknowledged the dress code, but kind of tweaked the, yeah. as many, much of the margins as they could. Yeah. And I wondered, now we're post-dress code, do we even have this IG walkway era
4: yeah. if the dress code doesn't, because it swings again. I don't think so. I don't think we get to the dress code. So again, David Stern, I don't think he could have predicted this, but he really did set it in motion. Um, yeah, I don't think that we can get to, uh, the runway or the tunnel without the dress code mandates and the players trying to, like, remember, these guys are creatives. Like, you can think of an athlete as someone who is physically gifted, but also it's wizardry. It's actually jazz on the court, right? Like, you, you if you practice, you do skills training, you practice the same move every time, so that in the game, you can maneuver in a way that it doesn't feel that way or you're actually doing something that's a, a riff on what you've done. So it is actually art within You look at Kyrie, Kyrie is art on the basketball court. And so if you give someone strictures and they're artists, what are they going to do? But figure out a way to be artful in that. And I think that's what the these guys who are really, you know, fashion forward guys are really artists, right? Like they're making themselves into visual art. Um, every time out in the tunnel.
0: Is there an outfit that you feel best describes? Like, I know one that uh-huh. you talked about is the night LeBron is oh, gonna break the record. Yes. Like he is. Yes, yes. He's about that action, it, it's gonna happen
4: tonight. It's, yeah, I think there are two. I'll say that, that LeBron, the LeBron outfit the night that he won, or he surpassed Kareem um, Abdul-Jabbar for the scoring title, I don't know if y'all seen that, but go back and look. Man, that black suit was slick. He had all the diamond necklaces on. He had a pen that say, stay present. He had his, his end scene was hitting them right in the, you know, right there. So you could see the sock and shoes, everything. It was, it was beautiful. And he knew that, I mean, when I saw that, I was like, oh, homie breaking the record tonight. Like you can't dress like that and not break the record. <laughs> right? And he needed like thirty 37 points. It wasn't like he needed seven points to break. He needed, thir- he needed a great game to break that record that night. And he put on that fit, it was like Superman's outfit, like tonight's the night. And I think the other outfit I would say is Russell Westbrook, I believe, it might have been Paris, but I'm not sure if it was New York or Paris Fashion Week, in the Tom Brown outfit. And I say that because he was considered like the most fashionable player, one of them. I actually don't think he's the most fashionable player, but he was considered that. Um, and he had on the skirt and I think that that was for him to be in that position and to make that kind of a fashion statement which is really a cultural statement that that was a really important shift because then you get Jordan Clarkson doing it then you get Kyle Kuzma then you get the guys painting their nails then you get like a whole new crop of young dudes who are really pushing the boundaries against what masculinity looks like in the league so I think Westbrook really kind of set the Tone for that to happen.
0: There's a term in the book, accoutrements.
4: Am yes, I, yeah. And
0: you note that that's an important distinction. Like if you have some if you have that in your gear, yeah. It puts you a step yeah. above. Like it's there's yeah. levels to it, but that it's puts levels. you
4: Yeah. Yeah, yes. I mean I don't know if you saw, I think I I I'm I'm just going to venture to guess that you can go to the rest of the panels in Portland Book Festival, and you won't see nobody wearing games like me and Elijah. That's accoutrement. Now, I'm a little biased, and I know this is the first one, I'm making a very bold statement. But, you know, go ahead and look at some other panels and see what you see bring it back to me. Let me know. That's accoutrement. Um, and I do think it's a, it's a different level, right? Because you can, give the, you can give a person the same suit, right? And then how are you going to distinguish your individuality with, if we all gotta wear the same suit. It's almost like the uniform, right? Like there's some guys who wear the arm sleeve, somebody, some guys who wear something on their shin, some guys like PJ Tucker will wear a different pair of sneakers every time. You know, like there are different ways, but to me it's all, I'm an individual, how am I going to express my individuality inside of these strictures?
0: You, Everywhere you go, you rep Portland. To the fullest. Are there any Blazers past, present, whose mm-hmm. fashion that like? I know you've talked about Jeremy Grant. Yeah. And are there any of that jump out to you? Uh,
4: I will shout out to Jeremy Grant, who's on the Blazers now. I think he's one of the most fashionable players in the league. And, um, you know, I never get my homie. Okay, so Damon Sternenmaier is a good friend of mine. And in. Uh, I think this was like, he was in the league, so he'd been out the league for maybe a decade now, is that about right? Uh, I can't remember who he was playing for, but he called me up one summer and he was like, Mitch, man, I'm a, um, I need you to give me some fits. So I'm gonna I'm send you some money. I was living in New York. He's like, man, I'm gonna send you some money, man. Give me some summer fits. So he sent me some money and I went and. Bought him a summer wardrobe and took the pictures and sent them back and I had stud fly. Um, so he's, he wasn't known for dressing, but I do think I'm gonna give him credit as a blazer who actually has a, an outlook and a perspective on how he wants to be presented in the world. I think also not fashionable, but a POV, Rashid Wallace, which is like, slouchy blazer, you know? Like, he gonna wear sweatpants, headband. Like, she don't give a f- <laughs> uh, So, that she. Now, when you get to, like, the blazers that were around when I was young, I never really saw, I never saw Clyde. I guess he must've spent all his time in Lake Oswego. <laughs> I'm gonna keep it 100. I never, I, Clyde never came to the gym when we was hooping. You know, Kevin Duckworth was there. I actually never saw T.P. either. I saw Jerome Kersey. And I saw Kevin Duckworth, and we would see Cliff Robinson would play. Those guys would come to the hood and play with us. Drexler, nada. Terry Porter, never saw him. Um, so I don't know what the dudes was wearing. Um, I, and, I, I, and I, and I, like those guys were stars, and they were here for a decade, and we never saw them in the hood. Y'all take that and do what you will. <laughs> I'm
0: curious about your personal fashion. Has it evolved over the years? Are there eras that maybe <laughs> like, you rock a little bit more than you do now? Like, do you seek comfort? Like, what are things that you look oh, for now?
4: Yeah, man, versus... I've been jumping off the bridge a long time, man. Okay. Uh, I think you gotta cross the line to know where the line is. And I often cross the line. Um, I there's There's, there's every year I, I get out and I'm like, ooh, Mitch, we shouldn't have did this. Um, yeah, this, this wasn't it, man. Uh, and you know, my friends would be on my head about it. Um, but I do think as an artist, I do treat fashion in the same way I think about a sentence. Like, have you ever wrote a sentence that's a page long? Have you ever wrote a sentence that's two pages long? Have you ever put so much onomatopoeia in something that it made your ear like, feel like it was blowing up? Like, I, I've done all of that, and I will continue to do it because I gotta know, not even necessarily where the boundaries are, where the opportunities are, how far I can really go. Um, and so you will see me. Maybe this is today, maybe this is one of them. I'm gonna go home and like, ah, Mitch, I shoulda. Maybe the proportions was not right on that. Um, but, but also, I'm self-critical. So by the time someone else says something to me, Bob already probably had that conversation to myself, and it's the same way with the work.
0: Well, it looks like we are running up against the clock, and I don't want to get a shot clock violation, <laughs> so we will go ahead and table it here. Mitchell right, S. Jackson, man. thank you, thank
1: you for taking the time. Yeah. That was the author Mitchell Jackson in conversation with OPB's Paul Marshall from the 2023 Portland Book Festival. If you don't want to miss any of our shows, you can listen on the NPR app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to get your podcasts. Our nightly rebroadcast is at 8 p.m. Thanks very much for tuning in to Think Out Loud on OPB and KLCC. I'm Dave Miller. We'll be back tomorrow. Think Out Loud is supported by Stephen Jan Oliva, the Rose E. Tucker Charitable Trust, Michael, Kristen, Andrew Kern, and Anna Sanford.